Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Coming up this hour, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky pleads with Congress for the United States to intervene in Eastern Europe. Meanwhile, the U.S. is not immune to the effects of war, even if our troops are staying out of the fighting. Another legal battle is brewing over accused gerrymandering in Washington state, this time out of eastern Washington, and one of the state's top lawmakers calls it quits. All of that on the way, but first... Here's Elisa Jaffe. Ukraine's President Zelensky pleaded with President Biden, lawmakers and Americans to do more to help his country's people. Russia has turned the Ukrainian sky into a source of death for thousands of people. Once again, he asked for a no-fly zone, and once again, that was rejected. But he also asked for lethal weapons, and lawmakers like Ben Sass are putting pressure on the administration to back Poland's push to send MiG fighters to Ukraine. They need more javelins, they need more ammo, they need more stingers, they need more SAMs, they need more airplanes, they need more of everything. And they're fighting not just for their kids and their future, they're fighting for the free world. ABC's M. Wynn joins us on the Northwest Newsline from Washington, D.C. And President Zelensky got a standing ovation. And shortly after that, he got an additional $800 million in military aid from the U.S., M. Right. So President Biden, of course, made remarks just a couple of hours following Zelensky's virtual address to Congress. He really did highlight that $800 million of new money for security assistance and military support. And President Biden listed out what that would be paying for. He said anti-tank missiles, defensive weapons, defending the airspace, longer range uh, anti-aircraft systems, anti-armor systems, small armed machine guns, drones the list goes on. And he says that this brings the U.S. total assistance to $1 billion announced in just the last week. But remember that the U.S. military has been giving assistance such as these anti-aircraft systems, anti-armor systems, grenade launchers, ammunition, shotguns, machine guns, helicopters. Um, All of these uh, pieces of equipment have been pushed into Ukraine to help with the defense. And so the president says he's doing uh, as well of a job as as anyone can during this really dire moment for Ukraine. Although we are hearing from other congressional members, specifically more with the GOP, saying that the president should be moving faster, that he's not providing enough equipment and aid to Ukraine as fast as they want him to. But we know at this point that the president and Congress's reactions are of mainly support for Ukraine and announcement of Russia. And so I'm sure Zelensky's pleas that we heard from um, his address this morning won't be ignored. But of course, as you mentioned, he did also ask for the no-fly zone. And President Biden did not mention that at all in his address. The White House, of course, if we take a look back and what they've already said, they say that it's something that could widen this war, that there's just too many risks at stake. And we heard from people like Senator Lindsey Graham, who said he supports what President Biden is doing when it comes to a no-fly zone, but he'd shift gears if there were chemical weapons involved. Yeah, absolutely. Mostly Congress is united against the no-fly zone. Well, Zelensky's idea is that, uh, or at least his hope, is that if the U.S. and NATO were to uh, declare a no-fly zone over Ukraine, that Russia wouldn't dare to engage with the U.S. and NATO. It's a big challenge for Biden from Zelensky to put world peace ahead of the national security of the United States. And it's something that he mentioned at the end of his address, saying that 
He wants Biden to be a world leader. And as a world leader, he wants there to be world peace. But it's definitely a big challenge. And we know that the White House, as of now, there's no indication that they're going to be changing their minds. But yeah, people like Senator Lindsey Graham say, while he is against the no-fly zone, if Russia were to use bioweapons, then he would support a drastic measure of uh, response. And that could be the no-fly zone. ABC's M. Wynn joining us from Washington, D.C. Thank you, M. Thanks so much. That's Elisa Jaffe. Now, during that speech to Congress, President Zelensky shared some horrific video of the destruction caused by Russian troops. Lawmakers are reacting to that, and our Taylor Van Syce spoke with Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. First, just describe the video that President Zelensky showed today. What, what struck you? I think it was a heartbreaking video. I think it's, a, um, you know, we've all been watching TV and we've seen these images, but it was a collection of some of the most um, horrific of the images, a pregnant woman, a, a child um, killed, uh, bodies being thrown into mass graves. Um, it was very difficult to watch. And it was also, I think, an important um, thing for him to show uh, to, to ensure that we understood what the stakes were. Did President Vladimir Zelensky leave any doubt that he is in need of a no-fly zone? And is that something you would support? Well, he said the same thing he's been saying for the last couple of times that we have spoken with him, which is he wants all the assistance possible. And one of his requests is a no-fly zone. But I think Americans have to be very clear that a no-fly zone is a declaration of war between the United States and Russia if we were to um, help with a no-fly zone by enforcing it directly ourselves. And that, that is what President Zelensky has been asking for The consequences of the United States saying we are going to fire back at Russian uh, uh, arms that come into a no-fly zone is absolutely untenable. It would mean the two major powers of the world, nuclear powers of the world, going up against each other. It would be the declaration of war. And I think Americans have to understand that and do understand that. They don't want us to do that. Um, So we're going to do everything else that we can uh, to try to help Ukraine. And already the United States has provided enormous support, but we haven't stopped looking for other ways that we can help, including working in concert with the NATO allies to um, to stop Russian oligarchs, to have sanctions, to cripple the Russian financial sector. Is there a point, though, where that calculus changes, where you would say, OK, there, there is no other option. It's time to put up a no-fly zone. It's time to declare war. Well, I think, again, what you have to remember is that puts every American at risk. It puts everyone in the world at risk with a nuclear war. So that um, I think the president has been very clear. We're not sending U.S. troops into Ukraine. We're doing everything short of that um, to help. At this point, do you have uh, any expectations for President Biden that you don't believe he's met? Anything you'd like him to do in addition to what's already been done? Well, I think the big question for me is what's happening on the diplomacy front. You know, I think sometimes people think that once the shooting starts, that's the end of diplomacy. But in fact, that is the very point at which we have to double down on our diplomatic efforts. And so I know that there have been um, discussions with uh, back channel partners in Europe, and I know the United States has been a part of that, in trying to come up with what um, what off-ramps we might be able to offer to Vladimir Putin. And I think that is, frankly, the most important thing that we should be focusing on right now is 
how do we come up with a diplomatic solution that takes Vladimir Putin off this absolutely outrageous, dangerous, horrific path that he is on right now? I'd like to touch a little more on that diplomacy aspect, too, because uh, earlier today, maybe 20 minutes before we started talking, the U.N.'s high court ordered uh, the Russian Federation to stop their military operations in Ukraine. Uh, we know NATO is going to be holding an emergency meeting next week with the leaders of NATO nations. Leaders from neighboring nations traveled into Ukraine and Kiev itself to meet with uh, Vladimir Zelensky in a bunker. And still, Russia is, is attacking what was a peaceful nation. Is this crisis going to get to a point where it's beyond diplomacy? I just don't think we can give up on diplomacy. I mean, I think that the um, the work that is happening right now is exactly what needs to be happening. And President Biden has been absolutely crucial, the United States leadership role, in pulling NATO together. If you remember, it wasn't the case that um, all the countries in Europe were going to be solidified together and acting together, even on the sanctions that we implemented. It was the United States leadership, the president's leadership and our State Department's leadership that helped make that happen. And I think that is what we're continuing to try to do and to enable all the tools that uh, President Zelensky might need to come from somewhere, if not the United States, then from, from European allies and NATO allies. And so I think that's the work that we need to we need to continue to focus on for those of us here in western washington you know there's we see a lot of unity in congress we see a lot of unity among neighbors here back home uh, as far as finding some way to support ukraine whether it's you know even to the point where some veterans are volunteering to fight in ukraine but what could the average western washingtonian do today uh to try and help the situation in ukraine or, or the people of ukraine well, I think the first thing is, you know, that the Ukrainian people are not a um, economically wealthy people. They are spiritually very rich, but uh, your dollars to humanitarian efforts go a long way. And there are a number of um, organizations that are trying to do that humanitarian assistance. Um, so I think that's very important. I think making sure that you're supporting the Ukrainian diaspora here at home is very important. And then I also think we could use help in um, elevating the call to we've already provided TPS to Ukrainians. And by the way, there are other countries that we also need to be providing TPS to that are in the midst of war um, all over Africa and Latin America. But I think we can also, um, you know, call on the administration to continue to ensure that the processing of refugees is quick and efficient and that we um, help support and take and take our share of uh, Ukrainian refugees that are unfortunately flooding out of the country today. And, and just to clarify, TPS meaning temporary protected status for uh, for fleeing Ukrainians. That's correct. We have already um, granted uh, temporary protected status um, for those who are here, and I think we want to um, or for those who are coming. But we want to make sure also that we protect um, Ukrainians who. Uh, are not here yet and need to get in. That's Washington Democrat Pramila Jayapal talking with Taylor Van Sice. Now, we reached out to all three Republican members of Washington's congressional delegation for their thoughts. None of them got back to us. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, as the U.S. remains out of the fighting, we're still not immune from the effects of a devastating war a half a world away. 
when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine continues into its fourth week, and the images coming from the front are devastating. Homes, churches, hospitals destroyed, people fleeing by the millions, and thousands of soldiers and civilians wounded or killed. All while the West, most notably the United States, remains firmly against any intervention. But that doesn't mean we're not feeling the effects. Joining us now is ABC News crime and terrorism analyst Brad Garretton. We're seeing a lot of people complain about high gas prices and the like as a result of this conflict, but that's really nothing compared to what the people of Ukraine are going through. Oh, no doubt. And expect uh, other things besides higher gas prices. Inflation probably will go up at a more rapid speed. Oil supplies in general may get, uh, there may be issues there as we move down the road. Russia is the third largest oil producer in the world. And, you know, it goes into other things too. It could affect the food supply only because Russia produces a lot of fertilizer. Things like nickel, aluminum, other things we need to make automobiles, cell phones, etc. All of those potential, depending on where we get it and how much we get, if we get any of it from Russia, could affect people's ability to make certain things. All of that is in play. And it's another example, obviously, that the world is really interconnected. And when something like this happens, it can affect all of us. Turning to the conflict, if you look at Putin's personality and history, it seems he's not going to back down and will use any means to escalate this war into a global conflict. But why is that? To what end? Putin is a firm believer in the term might makes right. And he believes that any force is necessary if he thinks it's better in his mind for Russia. I think there's something going on with him. Is it his age? Is it he finally has decided that he's going to try to, try to reconstitute a version of the Soviet Union, of which Ukraine was a critical component. But the point being, I just don't see him personality-wise backing down. He will get more brutal, I think, if anything else, as time goes on. So if the U.S. or or the West or NATO or the EU decides to intervene, does Russia really have the capability to take on the rest of the world? Well, I don't know about that. I mean, my guess is he thinks he can, but the, the tricky game you play here is he's really got a large nuclear arsenal. And would he be willing to use it if, in fact, he felt like he was pushed back in a corner by multiple countries, including the U.S.? That's an unknown thing at this point. I do think it's more realistic that he might use small nuclear devices, perhaps within Ukraine, if, in fact, this further deteriorates. This is something we haven't heard about in, since the end of the Cold War, really. And the specter of, of a, a nuclear exchange is certainly frightening for all involved. But how do you even stop something like this? It's a good question, because the technology in nuclear weapons today, I mean, Putin contends he's got nuclear bombs that are what he calls hypersonic. And there's some question of how effectively we can stop those. Uh, I, I don't know the, the real answer to that. But, I mean, let's face it. I, you know, the belief is that Putin, if he chose to, could, you know, kill 30 to 40 million people in a few hours with nuclear bombs. Now, of course, the problem with that is he's going to get all of that launched back toward him. So do I see that happening? I don't think that's likely because you're really talking about annihilation then. But it'll be interesting to see how far he really is willing to go in Ukraine 
to try to basically dominate and control Ukraine. And to your point, if in fact, at some point, we and others jump in, how complicated that's going to really get. You're really now then talking about a global conflict. Now, Russia and Ukraine are in the midst of peace talks. They've been going on for the better part of a week, but this is all sounding a bit familiar. Maybe something that happened 80 years ago, whether that means appeasement from European powers or the U.S. taking a firm isolationist policy. Am I the only one seeing parallels here? Uh, No, I don't think so. I mean, there's many believe that these talks are just a sham, that Putin is not willing to like budge except for what he what he wanted on the front end, which was a guarantee Ukraine wouldn't join NATO and that it would be a power that Russia would control. In other words, he would put his own people in effect in charge. I, you know, nobody's going to agree to that. Uh, he hasn't gotten off of that. And I've not heard anything in the talks that would suggest that what I just said it would be compromised at all from the Russian perspective. So where is China in all of this? They're an emerging superpower. They're a nuclear state. They're also communist, as uh, Vladimir Putin is or was or wants to be. What's going on there? So, you know, China obviously is an immense economy. They are the biggest importers of oil in the world, and they get a fair amount of it from Russia. So part of their relationship with Putin is that he supplies them energy oil, gas, etc. And Russia is a is an autocratic state and to a large extent so is China. So it's it's a bit of the, you know the big guys sort of rubbing elbows with each other. I'm actually not convinced China will actually jump into this in any aggressive or physical way because they have too much to lose. Their own economy clearly is based on the West, Europe, Etc. Buying things from them, and because 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 we obviously do, they really can't afford to lose that and get isolated from the rest of us. And that's going to be their 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 card of falling back. Of uh, look, Mr. Putin, you know, we'll we'll chat with you, but I don't know. I I just can't envision them doing anything proactive in this Ukraine conflict. So where do you see this whole conflict going? Nowhere good. I think Putin is going to get more and more aggressive. He's going to bomb more and more citizens. I think it's certainly within the realm of possibility of him using chemical or biological weapons. And that may well be for the U.S. and others a red line. I don't know. But to answer your question, no, we're good, at least in the foreseeable future. Brad Garrett, ABC News crime and terrorism analyst, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. We have to take another break, but when we come back, accusations of gerrymandering with Washington State's new legislative map. Details on the lawsuits when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela, and politics continues to confound map makers. Yes, we're talking about redistricting. Of course, the Washington Redistricting Commission this year missed its deadline to draw those final congressional and legislative maps. And now we've got another lawsuit being filed over one of these districts. Joining me now is Paul Query. He is the editor of the Washington Observer, longtime political reporter down in Olympia for the Associated Press. And this has to do with, interestingly enough, an eastern Washington district that some think is drawn to be too democratic? What's going on? So actually, the district, uh, this is, we're talking about the 15th district, which is part of Yakima and um, surrounding areas. It was redrawn in the redistricting process to make it um, narrowly majority Latino in terms of citizens of voting age. As you know, the commission process has been a complete uh, dumpster fire. And the 
Um, commissions have now been sued three times. The most recent one was actually filed by conservative Latino politician from out there, and it's challenging that district on the grounds that it was drawn only for racial purposes but, um, but without any have, other compelling um, issue. But is that necessarily illegal? Well, it, yeah, the law the law is a little in conflict on that. It was definitely drawn for that purpose. And the Voting Rights Act kind of requires that districts be drawn so that traditionally underrepresented groups can be, you know, can have a chance to win win seats. So you're not supposed to to divide those communities. So it's a little bit cloudy in terms of exactly, you know, where the law lies. And that's, you know, that's not really what I what I do here. Um, the argument is essentially the district was put together to have this racial racial composition with no other real reason behind it. And the interesting thing about that argument is that the same district is being challenged from the other direction uh, by some Latino political activists out there who argue essentially that it's not Latino enough, which is essentially an argument that the, the Latino population of the district is not large enough to give them a real, give a, a Democrat, really, a real chance to win out there. So who's filing these lawsuits? One of them was filed by a coalition of Latino activists out there um, who would like to, I think, see a Democrat represent that area. Um, and the other was filed by one of the um, candidates who's challenging Congressman Dan Newhouse in the fourth. And that guy's name is Benancio Garcia. Um, and he's a, you know, conservative sort of, you know, kind of in the Lauren Culp vein. His argument is that the district's unconstitutional. And that's based on a case from the 1990s out in North Carolina, where there was a district that was drawn to be majority black. And it looks like sort of a long squiggly line. Um, and it was thrown out um, on these same grounds. So I'm guessing because he's citing the North Carolina case that this is being filed in federal court. Yeah, the case is filed in U.S. District Court in Tacoma, and so eventually, theoretically, winds up before the Ninth Circuit and and perhaps the Supreme Court if they agree to hear it. I mean, it's possible that they won't agree to hear it. You know, it's very early days in term in terms of the legal process. Plus, it's also an election year, so the clock is ticking. Yeah, and what's frequently happened is that an election's gone ahead with the contested map, and the case doesn't get resolved for you know two or four you know year, years later. What have we seen here in Washington state about this? Obviously, North Carolina has seen this. We've seen lawsuits in Wisconsin. We've seen them in Texas and in other places. But Washington doesn't have too much of a history over challenged maps, do they? I think that there were some challenges decades ago before the redistricting commission was set up. And one of the interesting angles of this is this is supposed to be a compromise. It's supposed to be a bipartisan compromise. There's two Democratic members and two Republican members, and it takes three votes to adopt the map. Um, but this is a circumstance where, you know, even the commissioners, especially on the Democratic side, weren't happy with the compromise that they, you know, that they agreed to. And they've essentially almost invited some of these challenges. This this new challenge, less so. We didn't. The Republican commissioners were pretty much in favor of the map, but on Democrat side, I think there's a real argument that that compromise required them to give up too much. So, what do we know about this uh, Garcia guy that's that's 
in the as you say in the Lauren Culp vein of the Republican Party. Yeah, he's one of um, as you may remember, Congressman Newhouse um, drew a big field of opponents over his vote to impeach the president, the former president, over the January sixth insurrection. Garcia was one of those folks. He does not appear to be going anywhere because he hasn't raised any money, which likely means he's going to finish fourth or worse in the primary in the summer. So are we expecting this lawsuit to gain any traction? You know, courts aside, I I would imagine that there's a lot of support for this among that Lauren Culp, Donald Trump wing of the Republican Party, which is very strong in eastern Washington. I don't have any reason to believe that the courts won't consider this lawsuit, and certainly they're going to consider the lawsuit from the other side. In terms of how it goes forward, I wouldn't be surprised to see the courts combine these cases in a you know in some way. You know, sort of just take a look at whether the map whether the map is in agreement with the Voting Rights Act and the other laws on this issue. And as you know, I mentioned at the top, you know, those laws are somewhat in conflict. So you know, districts are supposed to be compact and contiguous, but they're also not supposed to divide or otherwise disenfranchised communities. And, you know, sometimes it can be hard to accomplish both of those things. Compact and contiguous. So what does that necessarily mean? Because looking at this potential district, it includes Yakima, but then all the way down into Franklin County in Pasco. For someone who grew up in that area, that seems like, just politics aside, a, a bit of a stretch that, that Yakima and the Tri-Cities, well, yes, in, both in eastern Washington, they're very separate communities. And that's, you know, that's an argument sort of on both sides. Both of these lawsuits actually have, have some issues with the lines because the district cuts Yakima in half and it cuts Pasco in half and stretches between the two. And, you know, you could make an argument. In fact, people did make arguments during the redistricting process that Yakima, which has traditionally been divided between districts, should have been in one district. And that's in general what compact and contiguous is supposed to mean. So if you look at the map of, say, the 34th district in Seattle, where I live, that's just West Seattle and Vashon Island, basically. It's relatively compact. It's contiguous in the sense that it's all on the same peninsula except for the island, which is connected to the peninsula by a ferry boat. So that's how that works. And in the case of the new 15th, there's there's no break in it. But if you were driving from Pasco to Yakima, you would have to leave the district and go through two other legislative districts to get to the to the rest of the district, which is one of the points they made made in the lawsuit. So, I mean, I think there's no one would argue that they. In fact, I think the Democratic commissioners would say that, that, you know, that they went to great effort to, you know, to put this district together um, so that it would have this racial makeup. And aren't districts supposed to represent communities of common interest? I mean, that goes to my point earlier of, of Yakima versus the Tri-Cities. Yeah. And, and there's different definitions of communities of common interest. A community of common interest could be, for example, the Native American population or the Latino population, or a community of interest could be a city or a county. I mean, in in Washington's laws about this, you're supposed to avoid cutting counties in half, and you're supposed to avoid cutting cities in half. There's there's a bunch of competing legal priorities and a bunch of competing political goals. What is going to happen next in this lawsuit? So um, the lawsuit, go. I mean, the lawsuits, you know, go before the judge. You know, there will be arguments from both sides to dismiss them outright. 
um, and that might happen, or they might go forward with some kind of trial with testimony from people who are involved in the process. You know, and I, I would expect it to take kind of a long time. You think it would be resolved before the election? I'd frankly be surprised if they got anything resolved before the primary. It's not very, not very long from now. And so in that case, the election would go forward, even though, as you suggest, the, the district's being challenged? Sometimes... In these cases, in other states, the judge orders the election to take place under the old maps. Occasionally, courts have written temporary maps. That happened in Texas a couple of years ago. So, I mean, it's hard to read the tea leaves on that. In general, courts are pretty deferential to the process, whatever whatever the redistricting process is. And in this case, you know, because Washington has this bipartisan um, redistricting system and you don't see the kind of really outright gerrymandering um, for political advantage that you see in other states. I mean, it seems like it might be a little bit of a stretch to have the courts throw these out. But again, now we're into the dangerous territory of journalists practicing law. (laughs) All right. Paul Query with the Washington Observer. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Most welcome. Still to come, one of the top Democrats in the state legislature calls it quits when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelin. Well, now's the time where you see a lot of politicians retiring. The latest, a big name, Representative Pat Sullivan, who has been the Democratic leader in the State House of Representatives for the last 10, 12 years. He announced his retirement, and he joins us now on the Northwest Newsline. And uh, Representative Sullivan, congratulations on your retirement. And I guess the first question is, why now? Well, it's been it's been 18 years that I've been in the legislature. It's hard to believe it's been that long. Uh, and, you know, two years ago, I, I had planned not to run again. Uh, then I decided uh, I was convinced to run again uh, because of the pandemic and, you know, the concerns that uh, wanted some veterans still around. So, you know, it, it's it's my time to, to allow somebody else to take that position and get some new ideas and new thoughts into the legislature. What are you most proud of during your time in the state legislature? I think it's the educational reform bills dealing with McCleary. Uh, you know, that was a long and, and difficult road to, to get to a solution there. And, you know, I believe that the, that the result is, you know, much more funding to our K-12 system. I think it's been the thing I've enjoyed the most is really helping other legislators. You know, the legislature is such a it's a it's an honor to be a part of that of that institution. And, you know, you realize that the institution itself isn't successful if individual legislators aren't successful. And so, you know, as my position as majority leader, I I work to help others uh, be successful. And I, that, that was probably one of my favorite things to do. Let's go back to, I guess, 18 years, the first time you came into office in, in the state legislature. What surprised you the most? Well, I, I've actually been a legislative assistant uh, for 13 years in the House and the Senate. So I, I, when, I, when I first began as a legislator, I had a little bit of experience. Uh, but I think the thing that really surprised me, I guess, the most is just the amount of time that it takes to, to be successful. Uh, you know, it, it really it can be very grueling. You know, you only have 105 days during the long year, 60 days during the short year. And, you know, it's it's just a sprint. And, you know, it, it's it's a lot of long, difficult hours. Do you think that that sort of setup with part time legislators is, is the best system? You know, I, I think, it, no, I, you know, it's called a citizen legislature. But in reality, a lot of citizens can't afford to actually do the job. My, my wife is a nurse, and so we're able to get by. Uh, but it doesn't it doesn't pay much. And it's hard to do work outside of the legislature for many. Uh, and so I think it does eliminate quite a few people who 
might have an interest but simply can't afford to do it. Looking back on your time in the legislature, what was left on the table? What do you wish you had gotten done that you weren't able to do? The, the one thing is, is K-12 uh, governance. You know, I, I had sponsored a bill a number of years ago to, to eliminate the Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction and, and create a state, a, a new State Board of Education where the you know, executive director would be appointed by the governor. Uh, and it would, you know, put the authority uh, directly under the governor. Or right now, you know, the superintendent of public instruction is elected, but doesn't have any any authority to, to spend money. Uh, they don't have the ability to, to do their own budget. It's done, you know, in, in great part through the governor's office and their, their recommendations to the legislature. Uh, and so I, if I had one more thing that I could accomplish, it would be a tackling, tackling uh, K-12 governance. And as the majority leader for the last 12 years, 12 years, 12 yeah. years that you've uh, been the uh, Democratic majority leader in the, in the House, how different is that job? Because I, I can imagine that being a legislator is one thing, drafting bills is one thing, but corralling the rest of the legislators as a leader is a bit different. It is. You know, one of the things that I really enjoyed was every day when you woke up and you came to work, you just didn't know what you were going to expect on that day. And so it kept it interesting, you know, unlike a lot of jobs where you're going in and doing the same thing over and over again, uh, you never knew what was going to happen during that day when you showed up uh, in Olympia. Which legislator surprised you the most? Boy, I don't, that's a tough question. I, I don't really know that there there is one. There, there have been a number of Republican members who I've worked with over the years. Uh, Skip Priest comes to mind as someone who, you know, I, I met, we teamed up on a lot of K-12 bills throughout the years. And, you know, it was just a really it surprised me that, you know, coming from, you know, a lot of partisanship that you see, you know, I was able to work with him uh, as well as any Democratic member that I've worked through with through the years. Anyone who covers politics knows that what is said outward and publicly is, is very different than what goes on behind the scenes. For example, for those of us in the media, we see press releases with somewhat inflammatory headlines from both sides and, and politicians stake their positions out in the media with the certain sound bites. But yet when the rubber hits the road, when you get back to it, there seems to be a bit more bipartisanship behind the scenes, in particularly with Washington state legislature. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, the, the, the number of bills that pass uh, bipartisan with, with votes from both parties is far more common than the ones where there is a true you know, partisan split. And for, for most members, the ones who are the most successful are the ones who really do reach across the aisle and try to work on a on a compromise or, or uh, you know, a, a proposal that, that has support from both, both on, parties. On that note, which legislator, I guess, did you admire the most? Uh, you know, I think pro- probably Speaker Chop. Uh, you know, I think I, I had the ability or I had the honor to work with him as, for nine years as majority leader when he was Speaker. And you know, he just, uh, it was amazing, uh, the, the the amount of energy that he brought to that position. It, it, it can be draining at times, and to, to be in that position for more than 20 years is pretty impressive. And then over the last few years, things have been even more difficult with COVID. You know, we're talking to you on Zoom right now. That's how many of the, the hearings have been held uh, during the years of the coronavirus. How were you able to work through that? I mean, what were some of the challenges there? Uh, you know, I think it's just the ability to turn and talk to a colleague or talk to a lobbyist or talk to, you know, constituent. You know, when you go into hearings, frequently people would pass in notes. You could go out and talk to them, get more information. You know, it was it was much more difficult in, in being able to, to get someone's viewpoint or additional information before taking a vote. 
when it's remote than when everybody's together. So you're hanging it up. What's next for you? I'm not sure. You know, I've been a public servant for my entire life. That's that's kind of been my calling. So I can imagine that some somewhere in in public service. I I don't know where. Uh, I'm going to take a little bit of time and then start start looking for the next the next challenge. You're only 59 years old. That's relatively young for a lawmaker to be stepping down. <laughs> I don't feel that young. I tell you that. <laughs> uh, you know, I have, I've got a grandson who's uh, almost two and a half and a granddaughter who's three months. So, you know, I look forward to spending more time with them as well. All right, Pat Sullivan, majority leader for the Democrats for the last 12 years in the Washington State House of Representatives, hanging it up after 18 years in Olympia. Thank you so much for your time and insight. You bet, Jeff. Thank you. We have to take another commercial break, but still to come, a former state lawmaker is doing some dubious work in Eastern Europe when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Finally this week, a controversial former state representative raising eyebrows over his current activity with Ukrainian orphans in Poland, and he's refusing to answer any questions about it. The story from Greg Herschelt. Matt Shea made a name for himself in Olympia by advocating that Eastern Washington become the 51st state and because a House investigation found that he had planned and participated in domestic terrorism. The Seattle Times reports that he's now in a small Polish town trying to get more than 60 Ukrainian children adopted by Americans. Shea claims to be working for a Texas organization called Loving Families and Homes for Orphans, but a check shows no such group is registered as an adoption agency in Texas. An aid to the mayor of the small Polish town says she asked Shea what he planned to do with the children and his reply was that it was none of her business. Shea is not responding to media requests for comment. Greg Hersholt, Northwest News Radio. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Schwartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogula. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.